0: Well, good morning, friends. Grateful for the opportunity this morning to preach from Scripture about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We observe the Lord's Supper far more than we preach about it. Uh, and so surely a sermon about it is in order every now and again. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of First Corinthians. That's where we're going to be this morning, spend most of our time. In just a minute, we're going to hear the words of, of two different passages in First Corinthians, both about the Lord's Supper. One is in chapter 10, and the other in chapter 11. It was my plan to kick off a new sermon series through the book of Genesis next Sunday. Um, but as scripture says, in his heart, a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Uh, that Those plans have been slightly altered uh, because I've decided to deal with the Lord's Supper in two parts instead of just one. So uh, just so you know, now the plan is to begin Genesis on Sunday, September nineteenth. Uh, hope that's all right with you, and I'm sorry if it's not. And by I'm sorry, I mean I'm not really that sorry, um, but hopefully you'll bear bear with me. Today we're going to dig into what the Bible says about the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper. And here we're going to be spending most of our time uh, gleaning instruction out of the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's hear together the words of those two passages I, I mentioned a minute ago. The first is in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 21. The second's in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And as we typically do in our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to stand together and give our full attention to the word of the Lord this morning. The first passage is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 21, which says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then the second is in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembra- remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. You may be seated. And before we get into these passages, let's pray. Father, with your word open before us now, we pray that you'd help us to hear truly with our hearts what you say to your church in these words. That you by your spirit, Lord, would grant that we could hear these, these words and hear these instructions with humble hearts, ready to repent, ready to believe everything you say and ready to respond obediently. May your word have a good effect in us, Lord, in your grace and your mercy. May it change us and draw us closer to your Son, for we pray in his name. Amen. Ever since the, the night of his betrayal and arrest, Jesus' followers have been eating bread and drinking wine and eventually in certain churches, uh, including ours, juice, to remember him. And they've done this because this is exactly what Jesus commanded that night. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Paul here in this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 11 all record the, the account of what we might call the inauguration of the practice that Paul later calls the Lord's Supper. Each of them tell us in their own way, from their own perspective, how Jesus, in the middle of a Passover meal that he was observing with his disciples, his final Passover meal with his disciples be- right before his arrest and eventual crucifixion, the Passover meal being the meal that the Jews observed on an annual basis to commemorate, to remember, to celebrate the way that the Lord had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. How Jesus, during that meal, took bread from the table and after giving thanks to God for the bread, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said these words, as Mark records, take, this is my body. Matthew, take, eat, this is my body. Or in full, as Luke and Paul both record, this is my body which is given for you. It's here where Jesus predicts his fast approaching death to his disciples one final time, just one last time before it actually happens, saying to them in the breaking of bread, like this bread has been broken, I'm going to be broken soon as well. My body will be broken, and it will be broken for you. Then the same way, the gospel writers and Paul in 1 Corinthians tell us about how in that same Passover meal, Jesus took a cup of wine. Most likely the third cup that is passed and drank in the Passover meal, what's called the cup of redemption, the cup that symbolizes the blood of the Passover lamb that was slaughtered for the redemption of the people of Israel. He takes that cup and he gives thanks to God for it. And he gives it out to his disciples and then says something to the effect of, as Luke puts it, take this and divide it among yourselves this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now in that moment, in this moment, Jesus is saying a, a mouthful. A life-changing, history-altering mouthful. At bare minimum, Jesus is pointing to his death as the blood that will save the people from the judgment of God as the blood of the Passover lamb saved the Jewish people and their firstborn sons from the final plague in Egypt, so the blood of Christ will save the people, save his people from an even greater judgment, the final judgment when God will judge the living and the dead. Beyond that, Jesus is also saying that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, the covenant that God had made, with the people of Israel, the one that promises blessings for their obedience to his law and judgment for their disobedience to his law is coming to a swift and sudden end. All of it, the whole thing. All the rituals, all the, all the ceremonies, all the feasts, the sacrifices, the rites, all of it's coming to a, a very clear and drastic end. And as Jesus says, a new covenant... Is being established in his, in its place. And not just a new covenant, but the new covenant. The one spoken of centuries before this moment, hundreds of years before this moment, promised in places like Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34, and chapter 32 in Jeremiah verses 36 through 40, and then Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 22 to 38. This new covenant that's promised there, what, what Jeremiah even calls, what God calls through Jeremiah, an everlasting covenant, is coming. And Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, says, it's almost here. And if you know anything about that covenant, you know it's an amazing covenant. It's a, a unilateral covenant, uh, God's solemn promise to save a people for himself, the Fulfillment of which depends only upon his own faithfulness, which is new, by the way. The new covenant is God's promise to save his people for himself, to purify their hearts, to save them from within, to make them new creatures, to write his law upon their hearts, to cause them to fear him so that they never turn away from him. To love and protect them as their God forever, to cause them to know Him fully and personally, and then you know, if the, the climax of that covenant is the promise that God will forgive the sins of His people once and for all. No longer will blessing from God be dependent ultimately upon their obedience, our obedience. God will save a people from the penalty of their disobedience, freeing them from that penalty and that burden forever by paying that penalty himself. And here at that last Passover meal before his death, Jesus is saying, you remember that promise? And they did. They remembered that promise. They knew that promise well. And so what Jesus says here is that that promise, that covenant is now being established between God and his people. And the very second that Jesus closes his eyes in death on the cross, that new covenant will be in full effect. But at this last Passover meal before his crucifixion, Jesus isn't just announcing the the ratification of the covenant or the inauguration of the covenant, the beginning of the covenant. He's also telling his disciples and the rest of the world for that matter, how one becomes a participant, a recipient of that covenant, how sinners become a part of the new covenant and receive the blessings promised in it. And what is the way Jesus says so clearly, it is the way of his shed blood on the cross. The way to become a part of it is for Jesus to shed his blood for you. That's why in Mark, you know, all, all the, uh, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul, why when they record this moment, they all point out when it gets to the cup, when it gets to Jesus talking about the cup, they all record him saying something like, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, as Matthew says. Or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, as Luke says. Or Paul, as he puts it, the this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They all point to the covenant. What's that about? What's this about? Well, one thing we see in scripture is that God cannot enter into covenant with sinful people unless a blood sacrifice is offered to him on behalf of those sinners who wish to be right with him. So the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.22, indeed under the law, referring to under the Mosaic covenant, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The reason that is is because sin is serious. That's how serious sin is. No sinner gets to enter into a covenant relationship with God unless that sinner, unless that person's sin is atoned for by way of a blood sacrifice because sin deserves death and nothing short of death. It was true in the Old Testament, true under the Old Covenant, and it's true today which is what makes Jesus' words here so significant when he says, this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant to be specific, which is poured out for many. So Jesus is saying that the the way to become a participant in this new covenant, this everlasting covenant that God has made and that God will keep and receive all the blessings that God has promised and promises to his people there, summed up supremely in the promise of the forgiveness of all our sins, is for Jesus to shed his blood for us and for our sins. Which he would do for his people on the cross. Which is why to be right with God, to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled to God, to live with him forever, you must trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone as the savior of your soul and the Lord of your life. Only his blood can cover your sins and secure forgiveness with God. Why is that? It's because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And our sin deserves death. So unless we want to die for our own sins, we have to trust the one who shed his blood and died in the place of sinners on the cross. So that last Passover meal, Jesus t- takes bread and says, like this bread has been broken, my body will soon be broken for you. And then he takes the cup of wine and says, like the blood of the Passover lamb was shed to save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, so my blood will soon be shed to secure the forgiveness of your sins. And then after each of these things, after saying these things, Jesus adds a command, which Luke records and Paul records. And the command is, do this. Eat, drink, do this, eat this bread, drink this cup in remembrance of me and do it as in not just now, not just right now, not just in this moment, not just this night, but again and again and again until I return to eat and drink with you once again, which they did and have done on a regular and frequent basis ever since. But what exactly is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What role, what function does it serve in the life of the church? Why is it important? For what reasons have Christians practiced and observed the Lord's Supper? And why is it important for us to do it until Jesus returns? I want to wrestle with the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper as we walk through a handful of truths that Scripture teaches us about it. And we're going to touch on three today, and then next next time try to gather up as many others as we can so first just to, some some truths about the lord's supper here first is that the lord's supper is an ordinance of christ given to the church to help us remember jesus and his sacrificial death on our behalf on a regular and frequent basis the lord's supper is an ordinance of christ given to the church to help us remember jesus and his sacrificial death on our behalf on a regular and frequent basis we call the lord's supper an ordinance of christ that's the language we've opted for here we prefer here to say that the lord's supper is a is a special ceremony it's a special ceremony that jesus commands his church to observe as we've already seen in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians, since it is a ceremony that pictures and so reminds us of the good news of the Gospel. You see that in the way that Jesus talks about the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, right? The, the bread shows or symbolizes his broken body offered for us in our place on the cross. The cup symbolizes or shows specifically the wine and the juice in the cup, symbolizes the blood he shed for us on the cross, which secured the forgiveness of our sins. And the primary purpose for observing this ceremony, as Jesus states himself, is to help us remember. Help us remember him and remember his death on our behalf, in our place, for our sins on the cross. So Jesus says, eat this bread in remembrance of me, Luke. Luke records that, Paul records that. He says, drink this cup in remembrance of me. Paul records that in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And what's interesting is that word remembrance, in all the places where it's used, in Luke and in Paul, uh, is a noun. It's a noun. So the proper way to understand that eating and drinking is, uh, we could put it this way, as a means of Remembering as a tool to help you remember. The eating and drinking itself is meant to call our minds back to the night when Jesus was betrayed, to the prediction that his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for us, and then to the fulfillment of that prediction as Jesus hung on the cross and gave up his life there for us and for our sins. Eating and drinking in the Lord's Supper is meant to serve as a as a trigger for our minds. You know, like a, like a particular event in your life might trigger a memory. Like a scent or something like that might call you back to a moment in your childhood or some tradition in your, in your, uh, in your past or something like that. So the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper is meant to trigger the memory of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf and remind us of what He did for us on the cross whenever we eat or drink it's meant to call us back call us back to what he's done which on the one hand is, is uh, a little sad isn't it I mean how could we forget the Lord how could we forget his death on the cross on our behalf why would we need to remember remember in the first place. How could we forget? And yet we do. Don't we? We forget. We forget that our sins were paid for in full. On the cross. Even the darkest and ugliest of sins. We despair and we doubt. When we have, you know, the, the fact of those sins brought up in our minds. We we. we despair and doubt whether we're even truly forgiven by God. We forget that there's nothing we could ever do to make us right with God, and we, we become puffed up with arrogance and feel very proud of our works, all of our good deeds. We tend to pat ourselves on... The, I couldn't reach my back. It's too far back there. Um, we, we pat ourselves on the back for... feel very proud of ourselves... We forget that we're no better than anyone else in the church. We forget that we're no more deserving of God's kindness and grace than anyone else seated around us. We stand on level ground before God. And with every other member of the church, we forget that. I mean, you bet we forget. We forget Jesus. We forget what he's done for us on the cross, we forget who we are, we forget that we're sinners in need of a savior, we forget all these things. And so the Lord's Supper is given to us to regularly and frequently remind us of these things. And you might ask, well how regularly and how frequently and there's debate about that, and churches approach it in different ways, but I would just say as regularly and frequently as we need to keep Jesus and the cross fresh in our minds, fresh in our hearts as his people. We might get into that later on next time. But that's the big idea. The first truth is that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Christ given to the church to help us remember Jesus and his sacrificial death on our behalf, on a regular and frequent basis. That's truth number one. Second, the Lord's Supper is a ceremony that reminds the church of God's faithfulness to us as his redeemed covenant people. It's a ceremony that reminds the church of God's faithfulness to us as his redeemed covenant people. Another way to say this is that the Lord's Supper is a ceremony that reminds the church of all the benefits of Jesus' death. On our behalf. This is why uh, theologians sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as a sign or signal of the new covenant. You remember the promises of the new covenant that we walked through uh, just a bit ago, all of those. To, uh, to purify our hearts so that we desire God more than we desire sin. That's a promise of the new covenant. Or to write His law upon our hearts so that we don't fall away from Him. Or abandon him in unbelief. That's a promise of the new covenant. Or to cause us to fear him so that we never turn away from him. And, and when you think about uh, why that's significant, just think back to the Israelites. How they so often turned away from the Lord and run after other gods. And in the new covenant, God says, I'm going to guard you from that. You're not going to do that again. Or the promise to love and protect us as our God forever, to be our God and to make us his people once and for all. Or the promise to cause us to know him fully and personally, to, to fill us to the brim. This is language that he uses in those new covenant passages, to fill us to the brim with the personal knowledge of him, of his greatness, of his glory, so that we might love him with all our hearts. And then, of course, the promise to forgive our sins once and for all, to remember them no more, to send them off as far as the east is from the west, and forget them. That's language he uses. Forget, so to speak. And to never treat us with the wrath that those sins deserve. Those are all promises of the new covenant. And so its it's not for no reason that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, that he calls his blood, the blood that he will shed on the cross, the blood of the covenant. It's not for no reason that he calls the cup, the new covenant in my blood. It's because he wants for us to remember not only the fact of his death on our behalf as we eat and drink in the Lord's Supper, but also the benefits his death procured or secured for us forever. And so as we eat and drink, God wants us to be reminded that all the benefits promised to us in the new covenant have truly become ours by the blood of Christ. He has made us, If we are in Christ new creatures by his spirit, he has written his law upon our hearts. He is working to ensure that we're not going to fall away from the faith and will preserve us and keep us and hold us fast forever. He will love us. He will protect us as our God for all eternity. He has truly forgiven our sins and will remember them no more. We are truly his and he is truly ours. So, how, how, But how can we be so sure of these things? Because Jesus' body was broken. And because his blood was shed for us. That's how. The Lord's Supper helps us remember the faithfulness of God, the benefits that come to us as a result of Jesus' death. That's truth number two. It's a ceremony that reminds the church of God's faithfulness to us as his redeemed covenant people. Then third, this is the third truth we'll consider today. The Lord's Supper is a time for humble self-examination and repentance from ongoing sin. It's a time for humble self-examination and repentance from ongoing sin. You notice that at the beginning of the Lord's Supper passage in 1 Corinthians 10, if you go back to uh, verse 14 in chapter 10, that the passage opens with these words. This is kind of the break in the passage where Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And it gets into talking about the Lord's Supper. And Paul's saying those words to professing Christians who were apparently participating in meals at pagan temples where sacrifices were being offered to pagan gods, which he actually calls demons in verse 20 and 20, uh, 21. And they were eating the meat of those animals that were being slaughtered to pacify the gods. And then they were coming to their church gatherings and eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus. And so in verse 21, Paul says in chapter 10, you can't have it both ways. You guys can't have it both ways. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, he says, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Like you can't participate in the worship of demons and then come to church and engage in the worship of Christ. If you're going to come and worship Christ with his church, if you're going to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, you've got to part ways with this world. And they're gods. You've got to leave them behind. You've got to flee from idolatry. idolatry. Flee and repent of your idolatrous sin if you're going to come to the table of the Lord. Then in chapter 11, Paul confronts them again. This time not for the things that they're doing outside the church and away from the Lord's Supper, but for what they're doing inside the church and for the way that they're observing the Lord's Supper itself. And one of the big problems he exposes in verses 17 to 22 in chapter 11 is that of divisions in the church that are being harbored and even demonstrated in the way they're observing the Lord's Supper. But you've got to understand that... You know, to understand what's going on here, you, you got to know that when the early church observed the Lord's Supper, it was likely a part of a big fellowship meal, as we might call it, um, which they enjoyed just about every time they came together. Christians have always liked to eat, and this is not new. But in their case, not everyone could come to the gatherings early. You know, so it wasn't quite like our setting where we say, okay, 10.30, let's all show up, 12 o'clock, we'll get out of here. Um, it wasn't like that. They just kind of started showing up when they could. Folks start, you know, shuffling in. But not everyone could come early to those gatherings. Some of the poorer Christians in the church especially had to work. They had very strict work schedules. Some were slaves, and they just couldn't up and leave Whenever they wanted, whereas some of the wealthier and, and, and more independent members of the church could, and so they would. They'd take off work early and bring a bunch of good food and wine to the gathering and just start eating, start, you know, going to town feasting and drinking and enjoying themselves. And then at some point later in the day or in the evening, the poorer members of the church would show up many of them without much food and probably hungry from a long day's work, only to find the all the wealthy upper class members of the church totally stuffed. Oh man, we've been eating all day. And in some cases, Paul says even drunk. They've just been living it up. And so some... Who are coming from a very hard day and a very hard life. And then you have others who have been tailgating all day and they're ready to go home and call it a day. But before they all go home, oh yeah, uh, hold up. We got to remember Jesus. Now that everyone's here, we got to break bread. We got to eat and drink in remembrance of him. The problem is everybody's pretty well distracted by the time that every member of the church shows up for worship. Some are distracted because they've stuffed themselves full of food and wine others are distracted because they're tired and hungry have had a rough day and there's nothing to eat and no one's thinking about Jesus at this point everyone's just thinking about himself but we got to do this we got to we got to get this done so they pass out some bread and wine and maybe a pastor prays a prayer and they eat and drink and then everyone goes home or something like that kind of gives you a picture of how it might have gone. So Paul says to them, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, whatever you're doing, whatever you're trying to do, this isn't how the Lord's Supper was meant to be observed. You're making a mockery out of this practice. The way that you're doing it is just a big joke. And so in verse 27 and then in verse 30, he says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And then he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What's the idea? The idea is there's a right way and some very wrong ways to observe the Lord's Supper. One wrong way is by living in sin all throughout the week, living some, you know, unrestrained, sinful life, worshiping the idols of the world all throughout the week, and then coming to church to worship Christ as if that'll just fix it all. Another wrong way is to be a prideful jerk and treat your brothers and sisters in Christ selfishly and then act like you're so grateful for the saving love of Jesus. I don't know about all those losers, Lord, but thank you for loving me. The right way, Paul says, verse 28, is to examine yourself before you eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. And what he means by that is to evaluate whether you're living in a way that would truly honor Christ. Are you pursuing a life of obedience to him? Are you fleeing idolatry and worldliness when you're away from the church? Are you confessing sin to God and thinking of yourself in a humble manner? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ faithfully and graciously and humbly like Christ has served you? And then once you've gained, so, you know, a proper awareness or some accurate awareness of your ongoing sinfulness and ongoing need for a savior, then Paul says, by all means, eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. Now, uh, some have turned this call to self-examination leading up to the Lord's Supper into this, what I would say is just an overly introspective and legalistic and ultimately harmful and discouraging sort of command. As if what Paul's saying is that before you can observe the Lord's Supper, before you can eat and the eat the bread and drink the cup, you have to identify and confess every single sin that may exist in your life at this very moment. Or that, you know, if you have any big or serious or discouraging sins in your life, that it's just not appropriate for you to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you need to repent and maybe, you know, clean yourself up a bit before you can eat or drink. Or I even thought this way for a long time. Uh, and I've talked to others who struggle with this, that, you know, if you've, if you've sinned that morning, the Sunday morning, you come into worship. If you've sinned in some significant way on your way to church, maybe you were barking at your kids or barking at your spouse, or, you know, you were angry at someone or whatever. And I mean, how many of you sinned on your way to church this morning? Uh, don't raise your hand. We've all sinned today. I had a friend growing up. Uh, if I spent the night with him on a Saturday night and rode to church with his family on Sunday morning, I mean, they would fight like cats and dogs the whole way there. And then when they showed up on Sunday, it was like, hello, brother. <laughs> you know, God bless you, brother. Um, maybe if you're a hypocrite, maybe lay off. But let's face it. There is never a time when you have ever eaten the bread or ever drink, in the cup, drink from the cup when you've been totally clean. Before God, that's not how it works. The result of this, this mindset that I can't, I can't come to the table unless I'm clean, the, the result is for some people, the Lord's Supper becomes this time of like near crippling introspection and discouragement and despair. Which I want to say is the precise opposite purpose of the Lord's Supper. Paul doesn't say, you have to identify all the sins you've committed this past week before you can eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. And he certainly doesn't say, if you've committed any really bad sins this week, you better let the bread and the cup pass until you've dealt with those things. Not at all. He doesn't say that. What he says is, look at verse 28. What he says is, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Or, and in so doing, New American Standard says, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, yeah, remember that you're a sinner. Before you come to eat and drink, perhaps even look for some ways in your life that you're not living up to your profession of faith in Christ or that your life is not matching with the gospel and the commands of God. And confess, sure, go, confess what sin you see in your life to God, but then eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. The only reason a professing Christian should ever consider avoiding partaking of the Lord's Supper is because he's not interested in repenting, not interested in admitting sincerely that he needs a Savior. But short of that, which might just mean that he's not really a Christian at all, the Lord's Supper ought to be seen, not as something you can only enjoy if you really repent of sin first, but as the very means by which you bring your sins to God and ask Him for the grace and help to live an obedient life to Him and as the very expression of repentance and obedience to God. Like the Lord's Supper is the opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to get things straight. You don't get straight and then come. It's a tool. It's a gift to, to help us express our repentance to God. That's point three. Lord, the Lord's Supper is a time for humble self-examination and repentance from ongoing sin. There's still a whole lot more that we need to consider uh, regarding the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper, but I pray that what we've covered today might be helpful to you as we all prepare our hearts to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus once again here in just a few minutes. I want to invite you as you as, as we come to the Lord's table again today, let's use this time for the things that we've seen the Lord's Supper is given to us for. Let's remember Jesus and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Let's remember that because of Jesus, all the benefits of the new covenant have been and will be given to us and that God will be faithful to us as our covenant God forever. And let's also use this time to repent of sin. To come humbly confessing our sins to God and yet also joyfully acknowledging that Christ is the only one who can cleanse us from sin and secure our forgiveness with God. Let's not run away from him because we're sinful. Let's use this time to run toward him because his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. More to come. Okay. But we're going to leave it leave it there for now. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for this gift that you've given to your church, this this practice that you've commanded. How gracious that you've commanded us to do it. So that we don't forget what you have done for us through your son, what he has done for us in giving his life for us on the cross. Thank you for your word that instructs us in these things. Thank you that you haven't just commanded this practice, but you've also helped us practice it well. And I pray that you would teach us and help us Practice it well until Christ returns. May it strengthen your church. May it sanctify us and make us like him. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.